You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Uh, so I had uh, the privilege, the joy, to get to go down to our Well Week camp this week with all of our students. And uh, it's super exciting to see a lot of them wearing their shirts this morning. And um, it was just an incredible week of watching God do some incredible things in the life of our students. And church, you need to know uh, that one of the most, uh, uh, I would say, uh, important areas where the Lord's doing incredible work at our church right now is in our student ministry. And uh, it was just great to see hundreds of students uh, going deeper in their relationship with God, loving God, uh, enjoying God. Uh, and one morning I was out on the, the, the beach and I just happened to like come uh, back to where the, the, the retreat center was, where we were all, the camp was, and I just saw a couple students sitting on the beach reading their Bible. And I just thought to myself, gosh, what a beautiful depiction of people enjoying God's word and God's world. And as the, the sun was coming up and I was just looking at the expanse of the ocean, I just had one of those moments of awe. You know, those, those moments of wonder where you find yourself just pausing and going, gosh, this is, this is so beautiful. This is so breathtaking. And I looked all around me. Like, if, if you go to a place like Panama City Beach, Florida, or a lot of the uh, Florida coastline, you're seeing people come to this place in this desperate search for beauty. Uh, just this longing to experience that which is beautiful. In fact, there's, there's something altogether um, super unique and intrinsic to what it means to be a human that we long for beauty, that we want to see the ocean, that we want to see the sunrise, that we want to see beautiful art, that we want to hear incredible music, that we, we, we long to gaze on things that are beautiful. That is something altogether unique and distinct about what it means to be a human. And I would argue that that desire, that appetite for beauty, tells us something altogether super significant about our Maker. And so in Psalm 27, David is going to illuminate these very truths for us this morning. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Psalm 27, or you can follow along. We'll have the words up on the screen behind me. And here's how David opens our psalm. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries, and my foes. It is they who stumble and fall, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. So, you know, it's a really unique situation. We're not exactly sure what's going on in the life of David. It could be two uh, particular moments. It could be him being chased and pursued by the armies of Saul, or it could even be the armies being pursued uh, by him of his own son. But either way, David finds himself in a moment with significant problems. He has real problems, real challenges, not just small ones like, gosh, my paycheck's a day late and I got a flat tire. Like, not those kind of things. Or like, hey, they're out a half and half at Starbucks. Like, not those kind of problems. But he's got real problems. In this psalm, here's some of the problems that David's facing. David is facing a vicious army. David is facing hatred and violence and people with murderous rage against him. David is facing family betrayal and abandonment and people walking away from him. David is facing those who would lie against him, those who would criticize him, those who would celebrate and dance at his very stumbling and destruction. David's facing real problems. David has real enemies. What about you? 
Now, you may not have like an army who's, you know, besieged outside your house. You may not have an army who wants to, I mean, he uses kind of hyperbolic language, but think about that. He uses it intentionally to say, eat my flesh. I mean, have you ever had like a cannibalistic army show up at your house? I mean, that's a bad day. If you were to go home and say, hey, honey, guess what? Today, someone tried to eat me or someone, I mean, you, you're having a really bad day. Like that's, David's trying to paint the most graphic kind of hyperbolic image possible of how extreme and awful things are. He wants us to really feel just how much he has to fear. And while you may not have that same predicament, while you may not have a literal army out for your destruction, you do have real enemies. For a lot of us in this room, probably statistics say over 30% of us in our lifetime, we will hear the diagnosis, cancer. You will eventually get sick. You will eventually experience loss. You will experience real suffering. Someone will walk out on you. Someone will betray you. Someone will let you down. You will hear, here's your two weeks notice. You'll hear, you failed at this. This didn't work out. You didn't get in. It didn't happen for you. A relationship will fall apart. You will experience real enemies. Because friends, we live in a broken world. We live in a world where suffering is not something that's out there, but it's rather all around us. It's an automatic. It's a part of what it means to live in this broken world. And that's what makes it all the more incredible that David is able to say in verse 3, in spite of these very real problems that he's facing, what does he say in verse 3? He says, I will remain confident. Confident. Who uses the word confident when you have an army who wants to eat your flesh? when you have family that's walking away from you, when you have real people that are lying against you and want nothing more to do than to criticize you. Who uses a word like confident? I would not be confident. That's not me. I would be curled up in the fetal position. Like I would, be, I would not be confident if that was my reality, but David's using the word confident there. And friends, we live in a world, once again, where, where often there's a proliferation of self-help books that are teaching us and will, will tell you when you are facing real problems to just kind of wish them away, to pretend they're not real, that if you just think positive thoughts, if you think good things, then all those hard things will just dissipate and go away. Maybe like, you know, I, I, I just, I want a boat. Maybe I want a houseboat. Maybe I want a houseboat with, with no internet so I don't get any more emails. Or just whatever it is, you just kind of like, you can wish it into existence. And that's not what David is saying here. He's, he's not trying to tune out his problems. He's not trying to pretend like they don't exist. I mean, his problems, his, 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 his obstacles, are, are, they're real. His fears are real. And so with, with verse 1, with him saying, whom shall I fear? The answer is, David, you should fear plenty. You've got plenty of real things to fear, but yet you're going to stand confident. This is a key truth that David wants us to see all throughout this psalm. Here's, here's what it says, and at first it sounds like it doesn't make sense, but we're going to tease it out a little bit more. He says, even when there is something to be afraid of, we do not have to be afraid. Even when there is something to be afraid of, we do not have to be afraid. So once again, his fears are real, but yet David is not giving in to fear. Why is that? Why is David basically teaching us that even when the fears are real, I do not have to be afraid? Well, look at verse 1 again. He says this, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Where is David placing his hope? Where is David placing the thing that's going to save him and deliver him? Is he placing it in his bank account? Is he placing it in his resume? Is he placing it in his abilities? 
in his friendships, in his LinkedIn profile? Where is David placing it? David's placing his hope. David's saying, my, my salvation comes from the Lord. The Lord is the one who will deliver me, not anything of this world. And even when it seems like everything's stacked against me, I know the one who still delivers me. I know the one who provides my salvation. I know the one who will redeem me and rescue me. And so it's very easy to read this text and to get it twisted. I mean, it's very easy to read this text and think what it means, that, that, that we can just kind of like think that the, the bad things go away and to ignore them if they're not real, but that's not what David is saying. David is saying that if, if your hope, if your trust is in the salvation that only the Lord provides, then nothing can shake that. See, what I want you to see, let's look at verses 5 and 6. What, what he is saying is David is answering our question in a very powerful way of how do we actually live this out, that even when there are real things to be afraid of, we don't have to be afraid. This is what he says, for he will hide me in his shelter. In the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies and all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. At the beginning of verse 5, he says, he will hide me in his shelter. Notice what he's saying there, too. He's not saying that the Lord's even going to remove all of the things that I'm afraid of. He's not removing the army. He's not removing those who are out to see him destroyed. He's not removing those who want to see his destruction. In fact, verse 10 even tells us that David's facing his own mom and dad writing him off. Of, 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 and basically, I don't know if that literally means his own mom and dad. It could have just been more hyperbolic language that he's using of saying, even my own family has turned against me. He's experiencing family turmoil and chaos. And those things have not gone away. But what is there for David is that he can still take refuge in the Lord in spite of the swirl and the tornado of his circumstances and life around him. One of the most altering and paradigm-shifting things you can do to understand the Bible and for your relationship with God, I mean, you can't miss this. One of the, the, the most important things we can all do is realize that primarily God is not interested, first and foremost, about changing our circumstances, but changing us. And if we read the Bible, if we read scriptures and, we're con and the scripture and we're constantly thinking God is about the business of changing people's problems, we will constantly find ourselves cynical, disappointed, and frustrated. I mean, if I'm honest, a lot of times when I read the Bible, especially Old Testament narratives of different prophets and leaders and kings, God almost seems ambivalent to people's circumstances and problems. But he's vastly interested in changing their souls, in changing their character, in changing what they love. You know, even when you think of the story of Job, Job never saw why he suffered. Have you ever thought about that? He never saw why he suffered, but he saw God. And that was enough. He didn't have to have all the answers. He didn't have to have it all figured out. But he just had to have God. There's two ways, friends, we can read the Bible. And one leads to a, a very distorted and miserable uh, view of Christianity and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. One is that God is primarily in the business of smoothing out the rough edges of my life. 
about kind of like ironing out the wrinkles of making my circumstances pleasant, that if I do the right things, if I hold up my end of the bargain, if I stay on the straight and narrow, that it, then, then, then God's going to take care of all the bad circumstances. That's one way to read the Bible. And sadly, a lot of folks slip into that, especially inside of cultural Christianity. And the other way to read the Bible is just that very reality that God wants to change you through your circumstances, not necessarily change your circumstances. And often, friends, I'll just be honest with you. I've just been a Christian, you know, the majority of my life now. And I've just found time and time again, for a lot of us, there will not be relief from what you are suffering, from what your enemy is on this side of heaven. That the darkness won't lift. That it won't necessarily get better. But God will continue to conform you. He'll continue to be present. He'll continue to love you. He'll continue to meet you right there. God is a magnet to our suffering. God draws near to the brokenhearted. And those who are attuned and willing to admit that they are broken, that they are weak, that they are in need, he will offer all the shelter you could ever imagine, especially in your time of need. See, your enemies, your problems, they are real. I would never want to minimize them. The the suffering that's going on in this room right now, it's immense. It's real. It's raw and it's gritty. And I would never want to in any way give you a picture that that wasn't real. And I don't know, friends, what what, what the circumstances will be for you in a couple years, but I do know that you have a God who loves you deeply and wants to continue to change you and grow you in the midst of those circumstances. If we don't get this, friends, Christianity will always seem kind of crazy and weird to us. We'll find ourselves getting disillusioned and frustrated with God very regularly because in some ways we have a view of God being much more like a butler than a savior. And when God is your butler and he doesn't perform and he doesn't iron out your life and make all the circumstances work, especially when you've held up what feels like your end of the bargain, you will find yourself frustrated with God. But yet God was, he's not a butler. He's a loving, gracious father. He cares deeply about you. He cares so much about you that even if what it takes for you to become more like his son Jesus, for you to become more conformed in the image of who God's made you to be, if that requires you to walk through the shadow of death, if that requires you to experience loss, then sometimes that might be your story, but he'll walk with you through that. Our God draws near to the brokenhearted. See, friends, there's two ways to read the Bible. There's those who look at God and they find him useful, and there's those who look at God and they find him beautiful. Jonathan Edwards, uh, he gave this great depiction. He was pastoring in a situation like a lot like I would often think of Texas or the South, where there is a lot of cultural Christianity. And he wanted to be able to distinguish between like a person who had a genuine saving relationship with God and someone who didn't and maybe was just caught up in some of the cultural baggage and pressures. And so what, what, what he would say is like, in your heart, you got to check your heart. you got to honestly ask yourself, is, is what I gravitate, is if why I'm here this morning, even what I'm expecting to get out of this, this relationship with God thing, is it because I find God useful? I think he can change my circumstances. I think he can iron out some of my problems. Or is that I just want more of God? I just need more of God. Is God useful or is God beautiful? And he used this language, he said the professor, the person who would profess a faith in God, often just found him useful, and the beholder 
the person that would come just for a sense of awe and wonder, like standing at the beach once again, in and of itself, just to, to behold, to see a sense of awe and wonder, to look at creation and to sink in the beauty around you was a sense of saying, I just, this is beautiful. And when you come to God, is it because you think, God, you are beautiful? Or is it because you come to God and you think he's a means to an end and he might be useful? And this is really just a, a matter of the heart. There's no way, really way other to diagnose it because in, in, in some ways on the outside, it looks exactly the same. Both the person who finds God useful, the professor, and the person who finds God beautiful, the beholder, they can do the exact same things. They can read their Bibles, they can pray, they can give, they can gather in groups, they can do all the same behaviors. But what it comes down to is what is really driving them. Is God useful or is God beautiful? So how does David remain confident? How does David hold on? Verse 3, once again, he says he remains confident. Without a promise, he's given no assurance, he's given no guarantee that things are going to get better. So without a promise of circumstances changing, how does David hold on to his confidence? What sustained David in the face of people wanting him to be destroyed? What held him up? What holds you up when you're feeling that very thing right now? I've got real enemies. I've got real problems, Ryan. You're preaching up there, but I've still got real problems. What's going to sustain me? Well, I'm glad you asked. And David is speaking to that exact same thing in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. He says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing, one thing. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm David and I've got a mountain of problems in front of me, especially I've got a warring, war, war, warring army, I've got people that literally want to eat my flesh, I've got people out there that want to seek my destruction, I've got people that want to see me fall, I want more than one thing, right? Like, just imagine if you could only get one thing in this moment, what would you be asking for? I'd be asking for, like, an army of angels, right? I'd be asking for, like, this army to be destroyed. Like, isn't that what you would probably be asking for? I mean, let's just say you guys were the army. We'll role play here for a second. If you guys were the army and you were out for my destruction right now, I, I would be asking, like, Lord, I just, I need protection. I need help. But that's not what David says. I mean, he's just saying one thing. He's saying, here's my one wish, so to speak that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of my days to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. To gaze. Look at that word gaze. Think about gaze. It's not saying gaze in a sense of like, oh, well, that's really interesting. Someone's riding a unicycle or, you know, hey, two for one at Kroger on like a ground beef. Uh, it, it's not that kind of gaze. It's, a, it's an intense longing. It's a looking in. It's a, I'm, I'm enthralled with, with my, 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 my look into your eyes, into your face. I mean, think about like a couple that's, that's really infatuated with one another. Not, not on a first date, because that'd be creepy, but maybe by like the fifth date. Like just that, that, those, those doughy eyes, they're sitting across the table from one another, just gazing at each other. They're mesmerized, they're enthralled, they're captivated. So David's saying, in spite of all my problems, in spite of all my situation, in spite of my circumstances over here, the only thing I need, the only thing I want is to gaze at the beauty of God. <laughs> I mean, it's, it really is astounding. And it's, it's this gazing into the beauty of God that has him remaining confident, 
because he knows where his hope comes from. He knows where his salvation comes from. Friends, why does this matter so much? Because what you behold, what you gaze into, what your heart longingly um, loves after is what will transform you, is what will save you. What you love, what you love most will be for your ruin or for your restoration. Uh, humans, we like to think of ourselves as like primarily thinking things, like uh, I, as long as I get the right ideas, then I'll do the right things. But we all know that's not true. I mean, I, I know all the right information about like eating well and like finances, but I don't do it half the time. So it's not a thinking problem. It's a, it's a desiring problem. It's an appetite problem. It's an affections problem. We are desiring beings. And when we see something beautiful, when something catches our gaze, it has a way of altogether transforming us and transfixing us. You know, I can think of the first time I held my daughter, and you know, just in the delivery room, and in that moment, there wasn't an instruction manual given to me of saying, here's the 10 things you must feel and do. But rather, it was a gaze. It was one gaze, and I was hooked. I would have stepped in front of a truck for her, not because I was told I had to, but because I'd seen the beauty of this baby, and there was a gaze, there was, there was a relationship, there was a, a, a longing and a desire to be her dad. Or think of a couple that's getting married. I mean, in that moment, I've done a lot of weddings over the years. I've never given them a lecture on how they're supposed to feel in that ceremony, but rather it's, it's the gaze as they look at one another. It's the longing, it's seeing something beautiful that's transforming them, that's connecting them, and that's bonding them to one another. This, this gaze, this desire to see beauty is so important, and sometimes we pass right over it. It's not something we often think about when it comes to God. I mean, there's a lot we often talk about when it comes to God, right? Like God's omnipotent, which is true. God's, God's all-powerful, which is true. God knows everything, which is true. Do you guys often think that God is, is beautiful? Do you often think about the beauty of God? Do you often think about how intrinsic the very, the very thing of beauty is to the person of God? C.S. Lewis says this in The Weight of Glory. He says, we do, not, we do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is a bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be united with beauty, we see to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, and to become part of it. You and I, like, we, we're, we're just craving this thing called beauty. We want things that are beautiful. We gravitate toward things that are lovely and beautiful. Gen Jonathan Edwards, in his uh, writings in the Religious Affections, he often wrote about the subject of beauty. He says this, beauty is a key feature of God. Do you think about that, how like key it is, like uh, God, he, he's at his very essence, and one of his key characteristics is that he's beautiful. God's beauty distinguishes him from all other beings and exalts him above all of the celestial kingdoms. And in his divine beauty, there is infinite pleasure for his creation. Our God is incredibly beautiful. And then Jonathan Edwards makes this incredibly important distinction that I think it speaks deeply to the longing that you and I experience inside of our heart. He says that the beauty that God has is altogether different than us because God's beauty is unfading. It's primary beauty. 
And every other beauty in this world, every other beauty that you and I love, from, from the human face to a sunset to a piece of art to a piece of music, whatever it is, all of that beauty fades, doesn't it? All of that beauty eventually wastes away. Even the most beautiful things that we can imagine, eventually they, they age and they decay and they wear out and they rot. So this longing that you and I have to gaze upon beauty, as C.S. Lewis even said, that we want to be a part of it, that we want to bathe in it, where does that get satisfied? Where does your desire for beauty finally get satisfied? Well, David's telling us that if, if, if we look upon God, if we see God for, for the beautiful God that he is, that desire for beauty is finally satisfied. And here's why this matters so much, especially as we come into a room like this and we sing songs of worship. I, I know for a lot of us, like in that moment in your heart, you're going, gosh, is my heart really feeling this? Is my heart really connected in what we're doing right now? That our hearts, our hearts can never worship or find something beautiful if we haven't experienced him, if we haven't experienced it. And so ask yourself in that moment, is, is there really an appetite? Have I experienced God? Do I want more of God? That's why we use language around Stonegate of saying that we want to enjoy Jesus. Christianity is not just a cognitive religion where we get the right information, but rather it's a relationship. And when we say relationship, we, we, we're talking about that parts of our soul that crave, that we have these deep longing desires and appetites for things like beauty. And God is meant to be enjoyed. And what you enjoy, you worship. What you enjoy, you bring glory to. Do you enjoy God? Do you think of God even in that way? And here's the thing that beauty tells us, that, that, that desire, that appetite for primary unfading beauty, that we're trying to hold on to something and say, how do I, how do I bathe? How do I, I soak inside of beauty? is that it testifies that we are really God's people. That we're made in his image. Regardless if you're a Christian or not, this morning you walked in here hungry for beauty. And this creation, this, this world that we live in that's filled with all sorts of beautiful things, all of it are just signposts, they're testaments to the one who made it. When you see something beautiful and lovely, when you see something incredible, it's meant to point you back to the one who made it. When you see an incredible piece of art, when you hear an incredible piece of music, what's your natural reaction a lot of time? Who made that? Where did that come from? When you look at a sunset, when you look at the face of your child, I don't know, maybe for some of you guys, when you sit in a deer blind and you look out at deer, whatever they're doing, or foggy mist in the morning, who made that? That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to ask you, who made that? It's an appetite, and those appetites have answers. Those appetites are meant to point us back to the one who made everything. And parents, just as a word of encouragement, I would say this. I think a lot of us in this room, we come in every day with a deep desire to see our kids love God, to know who God is. But your kids will always be way more influenced and impacted by what they see you enjoying than what you tell them. And so you can tell them, the importance of God. You can tell them uh, uh, that they should enjoy God, that they should live for God. But if all they see you doing is living for a vacation and enjoying sports accomplishments 
and school activities, then, then your affections and desires are preaching a completely different message than your words. And I'm not saying, like, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we shouldn't really point our kids toward great accomplishments in schools and academic. I'm not saying any of that. Like sports, all that, they're great. They're absolutely wonderful. But do your kids, do they see you enjoy God? Do they see you love God? They're much more persuaded and influenced by what you love and what you enjoy than, than simply what you tell them. So, at the risk of uh, giving you a list, because I'm, I actually, I'm, I don't love lists, but I want to be practical and I want to be helpful, like how we see God, of how we experience his beauty, okay? So, here's the thing, the list won't save you, but if, if you do nothing, that doesn't help you either, okay? So, I'm, I'm not saying that the list saves us, but what I am saying is that if we don't do anything, then in some ways, we're missing out on an opportunity to enjoy and see the beauty of God. Number one, uh, we, we have to carve out space where we're really going to read the Bible. And I'm not talking like read it in like I've, I've got five minutes while I eat a sandwich, but I'm talking like I'm really going to linger here. I'm going to stop. I'm going to carve out space. And I'm going I'm to read, like really read. I'm not letting go of this text. I'm not letting go of this, this passage until I understand what the Lord is trying to say to me, what the Lord has for me. Um, I, you know, I often think about like a uh, a tea bag, if you put it in a cup of hot water and you pull it out right away and then you try to drink that, that water, it's not going to taste very good, is it? Like that tea bag needs to, it needs to steep. It needs to sit in the water for a period of time in order to have its full effect. And the Bible, God's word always rewards those who will linger, those who will, 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 will be willing to mine into God's word and then meditate to truly pause and say, Lord, I, I, I need you. I want to I hear from you. But we really have to be willing to do that, to dive into God's word. He's, he's trying to speak to us. And the next one is, uh, I, I think for a lot of us, like, w- we need to think about like, what it would look like to carve out some silence inside of our life. I think for many of us, we walk in and we go through our life and our souls feel quite malnourished by the distraction and the noise of life. One of the biggest spiritual obstacles you and I face to seeing the beauty of God and enjoying God is the volume of life. Um, I remember being in college. I was driving this, you know, very old Chevy Cavalier, and it was about to break down on me. And uh, a friend of mine, he was like, you hear that big clunk sound every time you, you know, you go above like 35 miles an hour? And I said, no, I don't hear it. And he's like, well, why don't you hear it? Everyone hears it. And I said, well, when I start to hear it, I just turn up the stereo louder. <laughs> so like that, that was my answer. I was like, I know there's a problem. I know there's something going on under the hood. So what I'm going to do is just turn up the volume. That's funny with a, a car, but not as funny when you do that with a human soul. About what's going on inside you? What are you afraid of? What do you long for? Where are you wondering about what God's doing? Where do you need to see and experience God? And when we refuse to carve out space to do that, instead we, we watch you know, reruns of The Office for the fourth time or we refresh Facebook for the 18th time in a row. In, in some ways, what we're doing is we're turning up the volume of life because we're afraid of what our soul might actually be saying if we would turn the volume down. 
most of our life, especially in America, where we run at a really crazy pace, is spent conjugating these three verbs, want, have, and do. I want this, I have to do this. All the, and we just spend so much of our life running frantically about, and the Lord is inviting us into this sweet slowdown where we can be known, where we can be still and know that God is God, as the psalm tells us in Psalm 46. So what about you? Can, can you carve out some space, just a little bit of space of solitude, turn down the noise of life so that you can hear what God might be trying to tell you? Another one is, as we do things like this, we, we gather together. We gather together. I mean, it's, it's kind of a strange thing if you think about it. If something really amazing hadn't happened 2,000 years ago, here we find ourselves in a room together, gathered together Sunday after Sunday, in some ways reaffirming and, and testifying corporately to the goodness of God. And as you and I gather together, we are, are locking arms and we are proclaiming, not just to God, but to each other. We are reminding each other of who God is. And the God is, and, and, and the God and who God is that we serve. That's why we gather together. We come together to hear the Bible preached, to sing songs of worship, and then we gather into communities. That's why groups are such an important thing for us here at Stonegate. We want to see people known. We want to see people not just in some ways like you, you, you've got some shared hobbies with other people, but they really know what's going on in your life, and you know what's going on in their life. This is so important for us. And the last thing I'd say is this. Like, when, when you think of prayer, does that feel like something I've got to dump off my to-do list or my fear list with God and then I'm going to go back out and I'm going to get busy myself? Or does it feel like I'm just going to come and I want to I really, and, and, and here's what I'd say. We all need to kind of just get past the thing of like, well, I tried to pray and immediately I start thinking about like how the lawnmower needs to get fixed and how I forgot to pick up like, you know, frozen peas at the grocery store and like all the distraction things starts kicking in your mind. That's okay. God already knows you'll be distracted when you come to pray. But are you going, are you building the discipline, the spiritual discipline of being willing to pray? praying, of, of having a place in your house where you go to pray, a place where you can go to meet God. Your heavenly Father, your loving heavenly Father wants to hear from you. He wants to know you. Do you go to him and do you pray? If you're looking for uh, more resources on this too, I'd encourage you to pick up uh, Donald Whitney's Spiritual Disciplines. It's an incredible book on what it looks like to see the beauty of God or um, uh, Gary Chapman's book, Thirsting for God. They're both um, incredible resources. Okay, so we're almost at the end of our psalm. I'm going to go a lot quicker through the last part of it, but there's two last things I need us to see. So two things I want us to see. Number one is a possible misunderstanding. Number one is a possible misunderstanding. So here's what David says starting in verse 7. He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O Lord, who have been my help? Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. David is in some ways saying, I realize that, that these are real problems once again. We've got real issues, and, and I'm going to show you what this looks like in my reality. He's bursting into prayer. This is him saying, God, I'm going I'm to seek you, and I'm going to meet you in my prayer life. So he's saying, Lord, I, once again, 
I've got a whole bunch of problems, but what I need more than anything else is that you would stick by my side, that I would be able to walk with you, that you would not forsake me, that you would not abandon me, no matter what I face, no matter what obstacle, as long as you do not forsake me, as long as you don't abandon me, I'll be okay. This is his deepest prayer. This is his prayer in spite of all the real fears that are surrounding him. He's saying, Lord, in verse 7, he's saying, be gracious to me. Lord, be gracious to me and answer me. In verse 11, he says too, he goes on, he says, teach me your way, O Lord. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. How does he get taught? Once again, by spending times of solitude and quiet and prayer and reading God's word, being reminded who his heavenly father is. Saying, Lord, don't let me depart from you. Lord, don't don't let me fall away. Would you teach me your way? And what I love about this is is it's pretty gritty. This fits in the pavement of life. It fits in the Monday through Friday routine of life. Because what, what David's doing is he's taking seriously just how hard this can be for you and I. You know what's coming tomorrow? You know, Captain Obvious moment. It's it's Monday. And Monday has all of its different problems and obstacles and issues that come along with it. And you're in for a real fight. This, this enjoyment of God, this relationship with God, there is real struggle inside of it. I don't, I, I don't want to make light that this is always easy. There's, there's got to be a long obedience in the same direction part of it. In fact, there's just times where we'll find ourselves a lot like David, just desperately crying out for God. Uh, when I first became a Christian, I wasn't looking for God. I had no interest in following God. I was just starting college and I faced a, a, a death in the family that drove me to the point of like deep sorrow and anguish and depression. And in that place, I could, I could feel God pursuing me. I could feel God drawing near. I could feel God as my shelter and my refuge. Uh, C.S. Lewis uses the language often in our suffering and in our sorrow and in our fears and our brokenness. God haunts us. He is, he, is, he, is, he is drawing near, once again, to those who are experiencing great anguish and loss. That's what David's saying. As I'm experiencing incredible tribulation and trial, Lord, I know that you're near, and just don't forsake me. Even just this last week, I was, I was finding myself just in my office for a moment going like, Lord, I need you. I had, I had my Bible open. I was just kneeling on the floor and going, Lord, I, I can't do this without you. Sometimes I just feel really overwhelmed. With, I've got young kids, like a lot of people in this room, and I just found myself going, Lord, I need, I need to see you. I, I, I need you to show up. I need you to answer me. You just have those moments. You, I, maybe I'm alone there, but just feeling stressed out, feeling inadequate, feeling like you can't do it. And how sweet it was just to sit there in silence and solitude and just wait, just wait on the Lord. And that's exactly what David tells us to do in verse 13, 14, I'm sorry. He says, wait for the Lord. And this waiting, this waiting is not passive. This waiting is not, you know, I gave God three minutes and then I just decided to take matters into my own hand. But this waiting is active. There's a deep sense of anticipation and longing and excitement about where, God, are you going to show up? God, I know that you're going to, I know you're going to meet me. God, I know you're going to provide. I know I'm going to see your beauty. And it might not even be a way that I could have ever imagined or fathomed. But Lord, I know you're good. 
And I'm going to get on the floor, and I'm going to open my Bible, and I'm going to wrestle with you as Jacob wrestled with God as long as it takes until you come and you meet me, Lord. Just think about that. Think of like we, we wrestled for the beauty and the presence of God often for the way we do accomplishments or possessions or stuff and how the Lord would be gracious and draw near to us and meet us. In verse 13, David, last thing I'll say on this, he closes, he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So David is putting in perspective all of his present trials and sufferings and difficulties with an eternal vision of his future. So in spite of all that he has to fear, in spite of all of his difficulties, in spite of all of his troubles, he knows how everything will end. And if you're in Christ Jesus, you can take great comfort and hope that whatever darkness or fear or enemy that you have, it will not have the last word and it will not have the final say, but that you have a good and loving father who cares about you and that when it's all said and done, will dry every tear right every wrong, and you will see him face to face. Verse 9, David, once again, he even says, Lord, I just want to see your face. And I find it so fascinating that Paul in 2 Corinthians picks up on this same thing. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, he says this, For God who said that the light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Christian, if your deepest hope is to see the beauty of God, if your deepest longing is more of God, then Paul's telling us that has already been answered for you in the face of Jesus Christ. That God has turned his face upon you and that he smiles. And what awaits you is eternal life in which you finally do get to see Jesus Christ face to face. And if you're not a Christian, today is the day to become one. You need to become a Christian because there is no better news in the world that the, the God of the universe who is beautiful, who can provide shelter in your storm, who can take away all of your sin, who came to live a life that, that was perfect and you could never live and to die a death that belonged to you, but rather he took that death so that you would have new life. So I, um, I would just, I would, I'd beg you this morning to put your trust in that, to put your hope in that. And if you do, if, if, if that's a step you're taking this morning, we'd love nothing more than to be able to pray with you even after service. And what a beautiful thing it is that now we get to continue our service in singing songs of worship to this very God. Would you pray with me? God, you have been exceptionally good to us as a people. Often uh, the gifts that you've given us are, are so numerous that we just, we just fly right on by them. Uh, we've found ourselves, I, I, just myself personally, I think a lot of us in this room living very busy lives that often feel very distracted or maybe the the enemies that we feel like we're facing feel very heavy or feel louder than you or feel more powerful than you. So Lord, my prayer is for, 
those, those people in this room that are just feeling that, like life has nothing but enemies and they can't see any way out, that they would, they would put their hope and their trust in you, that you would be their refuge. And even when all of life seems to be conspiring against them and there are real things to fear, and that our hearts would still long to say, Lord, I, I, I want nothing more than to be able to gaze upon your beauty. And as we gaze upon your beauty, the beauty of who you are and what you've done on our behalf, that we would be transformed, that we would be made more like you from one degree of glory to the next. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.